0: I know school is starting here real soon, and we're going to have some time to pray for our students in the next couple weeks as we get back into... Thanks, Nick. Isn't Nick awesome? Come on. <laughs> Getting ready to start back into. But we just want to continue on in our message, in our series, rather, called Parables. And I want to start off with this question today. Is that have you ever found yourself waiting for something? Have you, have you ever had to wait for something? Now, I'm not talking about like you're in the drive through McDonald's or, you know, like that kind of waiting. I'm not talking about like, you know, it takes forever for my phone, for the page to load on my phone, you know, that kind of waiting with dial-up internet or whatever. Maybe you're in a dead zone. You're like, why isn't my phone working? I'm talking like waiting for something, like longing for something. And I know generally, the, uh, generally as a culture, we're not that good at waiting, are we? We are not, we are not naturally patient people. And especially in, this, in the era of instant access and on-demand culture, like we are just not good at waiting for something or saving up money for something. There used to be a day where if you wanted to buy something, you had to save up for something, right? You had to save your money in order to buy something. I remember even uh, when we were younger, you used to do something called layaway, where you'd go up to the store and you would say, I want to buy that sofa, and you would go in and put It would go on layaway, and you'd put money in, you know, once a month until you could afford to buy that and then bring it home. You had to wait for something. That doesn't happen anymore now. You go in, you're like, can I get credit? Can I get a credit card? I want this today. Can this be delivered today, right? Not tomorrow, right? And they say, well, it's going to be in three days. You're like, nope, that's not going to work. I need it now. We're just not good. Does anyone anyone else feel this? Anyone else see this? Am I the only one who sees this, you know? We're just not good at this waiting culture anymore. I remember my boys just turned 15. That's last week. I can't believe I have 15-year-old boys. I'm just not that old. I'm just not that old. But uh, don't let this gray hair fool you, you know. Um, but my boys are 15, and I remember, I remember the day, their date. They were born, so they, my wife had a C-section. And so we went in on, on a Sunday morning, and, you know, we got up in the elevator, and their nurses were all waiting for us. And we went in, and they took her, and they did her thing with us. And then the one nurse took me aside, and she gave me some scrubs because I was able to go into the room and she put me into this like closet. It wasn't even like a a dressing room or any, it was like a storage room. That's what it felt like. And there was like, you know, she put me in this room, she closed the door, and she said, here, get dressed, put these things on, and wait here, she says. And then she says something I'll never forget. She says, it's going to feel like I forgot about you. That's what she says to me. It's going to feel, I'm like, how long are you going to be gone? She's like, it's, it's going to feel like I forgot about you, and then I'll come, but I'll, I'll, I'll come get you when, when it's ready. And so, I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm nervous, this is our first kids, my wife's going in, in, in an operating room, and you don't know what to expect, you think you're ready, you have no idea if you're ready, you don't know what to, to expect, and so I'm getting dressed, and sure enough, it's like five minutes goes by, it's like ten minutes goes, I'm like, where is, this is done, my boys are born, I'm not even there, like. Waiting and waiting and longing and just feeling anxious and full of expectation and hope, but waiting, feeling like I have missed it. And finally she comes in, I feel like it's over, and I come in and I'm just getting started, you know, it's like that sense of anxious waiting. But I remember that feeling of tension, that feeling of anxiety, that feeling of longing to be somewhere that I cannot be currently, and just hoping that everything will turn out the way it is. Well today we 're going to continue in our series called Parables, exploring these stories that Jesus told and, and we talking about specifically about one that he was talking about waiting or more importantly, how to live and how, how we 're called to live while we wait. You see a little back up to our story we 're going to be talking about the, the story of the Ten Bridesmaids or the Ten virgins and before we get to that, the, Jesus kind of had this moment there's a little backstory to set up this parable is that you know, the, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had just asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was. You know, Jesus kind of told them to love God, love the Lord your God, love people as yourself. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees kind of talked among themselves like, well, he keeps on outsmarting us, so we're not going to ask him any more questions anymore. We've kind of come to the end of our rope. And then Jesus goes on and he starts talking about the signs of the times. He starts talking about the times that what well, well, we can look to and expect on his return when God is going to, come back. He, he talks about the birth pains. He talks about how Christians are going to experience persecution, how things are going to get worse before they get better. Very positive, very uplifting message, right? right? Very encouraging. Um, he, but he's talking about God's return for his church and what that will look like and how we are supposed to live as we wait. And into this context of talking to his followers and talking to his disciples, he tells this story that we find in Matthew 25, starting in verse 1. And we're going to read it together. It's going to be on the screen. And then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough oil for the lamps, but the five who were wise enough to take, a, a, take along an extra oil. And when the bridegroom, while, when the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At, the midnight, uh, at, at midnight, they were roused by a shout. Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. And all the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. And five the foolish ones, uh, so five foolish ones asked the others, please give us some of your oil because our lamp is going out. But the others replied, we don't have enough for all of us, so go to the shop and buy some for yourself. And while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready Then those who were ready went with him to the marriage feast. And the door was locked. Later, the other five bridesmaids returned and they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back and he says, believe me, I do not know you. So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or the hour of my return. And this is this is just like a lot for us to under, understand and digest here today. And so we're going to just kind of take it a little bit at a time. But before we get too far into it, let's just identify the characters of the story, the carib- characters of this parable to fully understand kind of who Jesus is speaking to. And the first thing we need to understand is that we talked about this a couple weeks ago that we're going to allow Jesus to be the G- Jesus in every story, right? We're not going to position ourselves into the hero of the story. Remember, we said to your neighbor, You're good, you're just not that good, right? You're good. You're just not that good. So don't, don't ever put yourself in the position of Jesus. But we see three kind of characters in this story. We see the bridegroom, which is Christ, right? Jesus is referring to himself as the bridegroom. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah and in Hosea, God pictures himself as the husband of Israel. We see this in his language. In the New Testament, Jesus also now in, uh, personifies this image. This personifies this image of God in, in John and Matthew and Mark. Christ is pictured as the bridegroom of the church. He is the bridegroom. So when he's talking about him returning or God returning, the bridegroom returning, he's talking about himself. He's, he's painting a picture of the future uh, a, a connection. And the second we talk about the wise bridesmaids, and these were the, the faithful. They were the ones who who know about the bridegroom. They know the bridegroom is coming and who are ready to meet him. Right? They know he's coming and they position themselves, they prepare themselves ready to meet him. The unwise ones, rather, are the Unfaithful, the unprepared. And this is the thing. They they know the bridegroom's coming, also, right? They're there, they're they're waiting. They they know he is coming, but they aren't ready. They aren't prepared. And this is the tragedy of this parable. This is the tragedy of this parable is Jesus is not speaking to those who do not know he is coming. He's not speaking to those who have not heard the gospel. He's not speaking to those who, who have not been engaged in relationship. He's speaking to those who know, but aren't ready. They aren't ignorant. They aren't, they, they, they don't know, but they're just unprepared. They, I'm sure they were good people. I'm sure they were kind people. I'm sure they were lovely people, but they were just unprepared. They thought they had more time. They thought they had more time. I've talked to so many people, especially young people. They've just like, you know, I'm going to get my life I'll get my life out, figured out one day. Right now, I'm just going to enjoy life. I'm just going to live for me. I'm going to have fun. And, and, and one day, you know, when I get married or, or when I settle down or when we get kids, then, then we'll kind of we'll get our life back on track or we'll, we'll get back into the rhythm of going to church or, or, or giving God our heart. But right now, we're just going to live for ourselves. Anyone else, I'm not no show of hands, but, you know, you've heard, you hear this all the time. And this idea that they, they just thought they had more time. And so this should give us a reason to pause and to reevaluate our own heart, our own posture in this, are we ready? I don't know what Christmas is like for you, but in my house, my wife is the hero. Like, she does most of the Christmas shopping, if not all of it, except for her. And even at that, sometimes she gives me a list, you know? Like, anyone, any other husband? Like, just give me a list, Wendy. Just tell me what you want. I don't want to fail this year, you know? Give me an idea. But she, uh, but my wife is like, by September, she's like, she knows Christmas is coming, right? Every year. We know it's coming on the 25th every year. And she's prepared. Starting, like September, she's like getting started and she's done by October. Like she's, she's done. She's prepared. But for some reason, every year it catches me off guard. For some reason, it's like the week of, I'm like, oh my, I gotta, I gotta get a couple presents figured out. Like I gotta, I, it's like, I, we, we both know it's coming. We both know it's, it's there. And my wife is prepared, and I'm the unfoolish, I'm the unwise in this story, and I'm unprepared. Anybody else, can anyone else, come on, do I have any any witnesses here, anybody with me? (laughs) You're like, you know, you think, you're like, I'm going to do better next year, I promise. And then it happens again, you're like, darn it, you know. But we get to this place of being unprepared, and this is kind of this idea. It's not that we don't know it's happening, we know it's coming, but we're just not prepared for when it happens. See, for most of us, this, this imagery of the oil is lost on us, right? It's lost on us for a couple reasons. One, very few of us, if I, don't, I don't know anybody who has an oil lamp anymore. You know, we, we don't, oh, there's a few. You know, but we don't have oil lamps. We're not, we're not worried about keeping the oil trimmed and primed and, and everything ready to go. Make sure it's full so that that candle's lit. So that, that imagery is kind of lost on us. We're just used to, you know, get your Bic lighter and your, your candle. And when that candle's done, get a new one, right? Like, we're used to that model, But the second thing, and more importantly, is that we don't understand the the idea of first century Jewish reference that Jesus is making in this story. Jesus is drawing on the reference of first century Jewish marriages and weddings, ceremonies. That's what he's leaning into. You see, in the first century Jewish world, in this betrothal ceremony, two fathers would get together and they would arrange a marriage they would arrange a marriage between their son and their daughters, and they would throw a huge party, invite all their friends and their families and their neighbors, and at some point in the celebration, after all, everyone's had fun and everyone's had their full, the young boy would approach the young girl, and he would offer her a cup of wine. Now, everyone knows why they're here, and everyone knows who the two kind of main characters of this party are, but at some point in the journey, the young boy would offer the young girl a cup of wine as a symbol of their potential engagement. It was like, will you accept this cup? Will you be my bride? Can you imagine the pressure of proposing in front of your entire friends and family? What if she says no, right? You're like totally ruined for life, you know? Anyway, so he does this, and at this moment, the bride has a choice, right? Do I accept the cup? Do I accept the cup, or do I reject the cup? Now, the bride does have a choice. Though cultural norms would probably encourage her to accept the cup. It's something that her father set up. But she would accept the cup. And once the girl accepted the cup and she accepted the proposal, then the soon-to-be groom would say these words to her in response. And and I want you to hear if if these sound familiar to you. He would say, in my father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you. But I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back to get you so that you can be where I am. And after the celebration, the soon-to-be-groom would head back to his father's house. And and he would begin to build an addition onto his father's home or or build a home on his father's property. And he would continue to to work until his father said, it's ready. Do you hear this? The son would go home and he would build an addition onto his father's home until his father said it was good enough. It was good. Ready and so the son would go home and he with hope and anticipation, excitement, working for the day, waiting for the day that he can go and get his future bride. So he would work and prepare. Now, as the soon to be -be groom is working at home, building a place suitable for his family, his future bride is also at home preparing, working with hope and anticipation, excitement, as she learns from her mother and all the mothers in her community what it's like to be a wife and a mother. And here is where. It all kind of comes together. Is that every day and every morning, the future bride would wake up and she would go into her window and she would make sure a candle was lit and that there was enough oil in that candle for it to remain lit for the rest of the day. And what's the significance? Well, the significance of this moment was that the candle was a symbol to her soon to be groom that she was waiting for him, that she was preparing for him. She didn't know when he was coming, right? The groom the, the groom didn't even know when he was going but this candle was her way of symbolizing to, to her soon- to-be groom that I am preparing myself I am waiting for you and when the day when the date when the room finally came then that the day would finally come rather every day working every day preparing every day checking the candle every day holding on to hope and the promise that her soon to- be groom would come back to take her then one day the soon to- be groom would And all of his hard work, he would would come to that moment, the dad would come into the room, and he would look around and see the space and and see what he has prepared for his bride. And he would give his son the green light to go and collect him. And then he would get all of his groomsmen together, all of his buddies, and he would go to that house looking with hope, anticipating for that candle to be lit in the window, knowing that she is still waiting, still preparing, still ready for him to come and receive him, receive her. And this is just the beautiful picture, isn't it? And it gives us an understanding of what this is all about. We see in John 14, Jesus himself says these same words to his disciples, that in my Father's house, remember, he just told his disciples in John 14 that he's going to die. He just told his disciples in John 14 that he's going to be crucified, that he was going to go to the Father. And in this moment, Jesus says something like a marriage ceremony to calm their heart. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you, but I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And in that moment, the disciples are calm. They, they recognize the language. They recognize that this is, that, that he is going to come back. That this isn't the end of their story. This is actually the beginning of our relationship. Ephesians, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, uh, he, he describes church. He says, husbands, that love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave herself up for it. We see this relationship between a bride and a groom, between God and his church. So what does it mean to be ready? Because I don't know about you and I don't know what you feel like, but I don't want to be the unwise. I don't want to be caught and and, and feel like I'm missing out and not being prepared. So the question we're going to ask here today is is what does it mean to be ready? What does that actually look like in our life? What does it actually mean to be wise? The very fact that all the girls were sleeping when when the call came indicates that it doesn't really matter what you're doing you know, you could be working or sleeping or, or at school. You could be pursuing leisure activities. It doesn't matter what you are doing when he returns. What matters is the posture of your heart. Do you have enough oil? Do you need to do anything to make things right? Or are you always finding yourselves in right standing, ready to receive and ready to respond when he comes? Remember Jesus in Matthew 24, just the chapter before we just read this parable. He says, no one knows, Right? No one knows the day or the hour when all these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son of Man himself, who only the Father knows. Again, he's drawing reference. Come on, Jesus is drawing reference to the marriage ceremony. He's speaking a language. This is what parables are all doing. Jesus is speaking in a language that they understand. He's using stories and imagery and analogies and, 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 and resources that they understand. And he's drawing from those things and giving them an idea of what the kingdom of heaven is like and how we can be prepared. And so here are three thoughts real quick that we can hold on to, maybe consider when it comes to preparing our heart as we evaluate our posture of our heart and whether or not we are wise and ready. The first one is this, that we need to accept and acknowledge Jesus. I mean, that's the, fair, the basic. We need to accept and we acknowledge Jesus. This is the gift of salvation that is available to all of us. Being ready for Christ's return ultimately involves this one major decision, which manifests itself in several areas of our lives. But we must be, as Jesus described in his, in his conversations with Zacchaeus, uh, um, in his, I forget his name all of a sudden. In his conversation in John with Nicodemus, that's the one I'm looking for, was born again. You need to be born again through the saving faith in Jesus Christ. You must believe in his death, his burial, and most importantly, his resurrection from the dead. This is the first and foremost. We all have to come to this place where we accept this gift of salvation, where we acknowledge this gift of salvation. Romans 10, 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is this... This beautiful invitation that this is open to all of us. This beautiful invitation that this is not reserved for the select few. That this opportunity, this, this cup that has been offered to us is offered to all of us. It doesn't matter where we are from or what our background is. It doesn't matter what we have done or what we did not do. But this cup is available for all of us, for everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But I think there's another step in which he, it takes place, not only do we need to accept it, but we need to acknowledge it. We need to openly declare, Romans 10 says. We need to openly declare, we need to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from our dead and you will be saved. There's this moment where we need to accept it. Yes, this is an eternal work of God in our heart, but there's also this moment of declaring with our mouth and, and acknowledging Jesus with our lips. Can I just share a quick caution to think I've, I've noticed, again, for many of you, you don't, you're getting to know me, but I grew up in the church, I, I was born in the front row, like I remember going to Agent Court Pentecostal Church, when we were kids in Toronto, and Scarborough, my dad would be working, and there'd be three, my two brothers and I, and I don't know if you've been to those churches where the pews get smaller by the front, right? You ever seen those churches where sometimes they start wide at the back, and they get really narrow at the front, so the front row is really for one big dude, or three little kids, really, that's all who fits there, right? And so... We were in the front row of aging court. My dad was working. My mom was on the organ. And the three of us, man, we knee-high to a grasshopper. We were small, sitting in the front row. And back in the day, we never got crayons. We didn't get coloring books. We didn't have iPads. We didn't have any. We had to sit there and stay quiet. And I remember my mom would give us the look. She'd be on the organ if we were, you know, boys. We are three boys, right? And she would just give us that look. You know that look? That look that says, if you don't get things figured out right now, we're going to be consequences when you get home, you know? <laughs> like, And you're just like button up right away. You're like, shh, stop it, you know? It's him, you know, as you start blaming each other. But we grew up in church the whole time. And this idea that, you know, I've been sealing this idea for the, several years, and for, for as long as I can remember as a church, we've been able to just kind of love quietly and, and live quietly and, and serve people quietly, being able to find ourselves in the middle without having to respond to this social political climate that feels like it's changing every week. But the tide is turning where we can't just sit back anymore. The tide is coming up if it's not already upon us where the people of God those those who've accepted Jesus must also acknowledge Jesus in every area and arena of our lives. It's coming to the point where we cannot be silent anymore. And I'm not talking about political demonstrations and marching and protesting. But I'm just talking we need to allow the love of Jesus to Overflow in our lives. We need to allow the hope of Jesus to come out of our words instead of just talking about all the things that are happening in a negative tone. Speak about the hope of Jesus over our situations and over our homes and over our communities. We cannot live in the negative. We cannot live as those who do not know of those who live in darkness, but we are people, children of light, to live as people and children of light. There's coming a time where we need to stand up for what we believe and acknowledge. Him, Jesus himself in Matthew 10, says everyone who acknowledges me, acknowledges me what? Publicly, not privately, publicly here on earth, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. There's coming to a time where we need to, one, accept Jesus. Yes, that's the the free gift of salvation that for all of us, for everyone who believes. But there's also coming responsibility where we need to acknowledge and confess and speak life and speak hope in Jesus. And I pray that the Holy Spirit gives us the boldness in our confession of faith. That we would be known what we're for rather than being known for what we're against. That we'd be known for what we're about. That we'd be people who allow hope and joy and peace to fill and overflow in our lives. Come on, that's my prayer. There's a reason why we went through Romans fifteen thirteen because I believe that is an anchor verse for us as a church. That we would allow the God of hope to fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in who? In Him, in Jesus. Not in policies, not in politics, not in people, not in pastors, but in Jesus. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can overflow with that hope because of Him and His work in our life. That's what we need. We all need that. But I believe in order for that to happen, we must kind of go to step two. And the, and the second thing is this, is that not only do we need to accept the gifts of salvation, but let, and not only do we need to accept the cup at the engagement party, but two, we need to both pray and prepare our hearts. We need to pray and prepare our hearts. This is the the process of sanctification. This is the work of God. This is us growing in Jesus, growing in knowledge, growing in understanding, growing in God's word. This speaks to both a personal relationship with Jesus and our personal responsibility for Jesus. We have a personal relationship with Jesus through prayer and through relationship, but we also have this personal responsibility for Jesus To prepare and to learn and to grow. We can't rely on someone else's oil. We see this in the story where the five who were, hey, they knew God was coming. They knew the bridegroom was coming, but they weren't prepared. Hey, can I just have some of yours? Can I just borrow some of your oil? No, there's not enough for you. In the same way, you know, I'm grateful for my parents. I'm grateful for my grandparents. I'm grateful for the legacy they left me in knowing Jesus and bringing me to church. But at some point along the way, I had to get my own oil. At some point along the way, I had to let Jesus become real in my heart. I had to prepare my heart. I could not rely on my parents' oil. I could not rely on my mentor's oil, my pastor's oil. I had to get my own. They might have modeled it. They might have helped me prepare and showed me what to do. But at some point, I had to do it myself. At some point, I had to make it my own, and all of us in this room, and all of us online, whether you're, whether you're, you're new into the journey, or maybe you've been in this a long time, we have to keep our oil fresh. Keep our oil topped up. Keep learning and growing. This is a relationship. Can you imagine just going, imagine my wife and I, we've been married 17 years, and imagine we made the vows at our church And then we left, and then from there, we never, ever invested into our marriage. We never, ever invested into our relationship. We never, ever continued to grow beyond what we already knew of each other at that time. What kind of a relationship would that be? What kind of health would that be? That wouldn't be healthy. But so many of us in our relationship with God, we kind of, that's good enough. And I I accept it. I'm acknowledging, but I'm not praying and preparing. I'm not growing and, and sustaining. I'm not allowing the work of the Spirit in my life. We see Matthew 7, 21, Jesus is telling us, this is what it means to be a true disciple. And these are harsh words. These are words that were like, like, ah, I don't know if I like this part of Scripture. But he says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What? But only those who what? Actually do. O- only those who live it out. Only-, only those who pray and prepare. Only those who do the will of the Father will enter the heaven. On judgment day, you will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform miracles under your name? But I'll reply, I never knew you. It's very similar to the story of the parable. I, I get away from me, you who break God's law. And in this story, we understand that, yes, we both need relationship and there's responsibility, but relationship trumps responsibility every day. You need to have a personal relationship with Jesus first. Yes, there's an acts of works that we can do for God, Right? There's responsibility to work for Jesus as we allow the overflow of his life in our hearts. But it's, it's built on the relationship with Jesus first. My relationship with Jesus trumps my responsibilities for Jesus. And if you're, like a, if you're a task-oriented person or a doer, then you can spend a lot of time on doing things for Jesus and sacrifice your relationship with Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so Jesus is like, I don't care all the things you did for me, I don't know you. you. You don't know me. Don't get, don't get, don't hijack your relationship and your religion under duties and responsibilities. Yes, there's a part for that. Yes, we have to allow, we have to show our faith by our works. Yes, there is a part of that, but that is the overflow of relationship with me first. Right? And so we need to engage our heart. We need to pray and prepare. This is that relationship that we are all invited to have with jesus you see this saving faith in jesus rather go big before i do that that's why i love how david prays his prayer in psalm 19 say may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you O lord my god and my redeemer there's this idea that we are always on our knees we're always allowing the the, the words of god the voice of god to search our heart and to make sure we are in right standing we are in good relationship with the father see saving faith in jesus should should manifest itself in every area of our life right but the tragedy of this parable, like I've said multiple times, is that the five unwise weren't ignorant. They were just unprepared. Listen, if Jesus hasn't changed your life, if Jesus isn't continually changing your life, then are you in a relationship with him? Are you allowing him to speak to your heart? Are you posturing yourself for him to speak to you and to change you and to mold you, to, to allow his fruit and, and his spirit to guide you in all that you say and all that you do, you see, shortly after this parable, Jesus talks about the identity of the sheep. He's separating the sheep and the goats. Again, both, both analogies, he's speaking to those who know God, right? Who know better, who should know better. And so he's really, he's giving us a big warning that we have to evaluate our heart. Are we doing things with the right motives and the right intention? And while the gift of salvation is for everyone, there is a process of sanctification, of becoming like Christ, that we all need to allow and embrace every day through prayer and preparation. Are you growing into a personal relationship with Jesus? It's accepting it, acknowledging it, praying, and preparing. And the last thing we're going to do is we're going to work and wait with eager anticipation. This is that hopeful expectation to believe that we serve a God who is going to return. He said he was going to do it. Listen. God, he said he was going to die on the cross and rise again. And guess what happened? He did it, right? So if he says he's going to come back again, I believe it. I believe it. If he said he's going to die on the cross and then three days later rise from the dead, and then he does it, then when he says, hey, I'm going to come back and get you, then I believe he's coming back. So we're going to wait with eager anticipation. We're going to work with eager anticipation in hopeful expectation. I love how Titus says it in Titus 2. It says, for the grace of God has been revealed to you. This is the gift of salvation, right? The grace of God has been revealed to you, bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed to turn from godliness, godless living, and sinful pleasures. This is the process of sanctification, right? Of turning from the ways we used to live, of sinfulness and, and, and godlessness and allowing God to work. And we should live we should live in this world with what? Wisdom and righteousness and devotion to God while, that's the word to highlight, while we look forward with hope. Listen, we need to live while we look forward with hope. We need to live today. We need to work today. We need to uh, allow wisdom to abound in us today. We need to be righteous today. We need to be devoted to God today in our comings and our goings and our work and our home and in our interactions. But while we look forward with hope, Come on now, right? We're not just, we're not just uh, of saying, you know, you know, throwing our caution to the wind and just kind of avoiding all of our earthly responsibilities while we wait for Jesus to return. That's not what he's saying. He's like, no, you need to live. You should work. You should live while you look forward, right? As you go to work and as you get up and as you go about your responsibilities, look forward with hope to this wonderful day when the glory of our great Savior of Jesus Christ will be revealed and he, and give uh, so he gave his life to free us from every kind of sin and cleanse us to make us known to make his very own people totally committed to doing good deeds there should be an overflow when we wait and we work with eager anticipation you see the same grace that we receive should compel us to help others also receive it and this is the this to me is a responsibility this to me is part of this responsibility of preparing our hearts it's not just about me But I want to make sure my kids know. And I want to make sure their friends know. And I want to make sure the people I run into at the park know. And and the baseball diamond. I want everyone to know that they also need to accept and to acknowledge. To pray and prepare and work and wait with eager anticipation. To never lose sight of what's most important. This is what it means to be ready. This is what it means to be wise. To be wise. This is what it means to wait for his return. I don't know if you've noticed. I'm going to invite the team back. I don't know if you've noticed or not. But things are shifting, right? And I'm not not here to prophesy end times and to tell you when it's going to happen and when it's not going to happen and when Jesus is going to return. But I can tell you this. Something's shifting. I can tell you this. The world that I was a part of even two years ago is not the same world anymore. You don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to be a spiritual elitist to understand that When every time you turn on the news, there's another tragedy, there's another violent, heartbreaking incident that we just feel so helpless to change. And you can feel what Jesus refers to as the birth pains, right, of the world around us. And I don't know if Jesus is coming back this week or in another 50 or 100 years. And at the end of the day, it does not really matter. What really matters, because I can't control that, but what I can control is my posture. What I can control is my readiness. What I can control is my preparedness. I can control my heart in this. Because I don't want to be unwise. I don't want to know he's coming, but not be prepared for when he comes. And I don't want you to know he's coming, but not be prepared for when he comes. I want us to all be wise, to know and be prepared. So what does it mean to be ready? One, we accept and we acknowledge the gift of salvation. Two, we pray and prepare through the process of sanctification. And thirdly, we work and we wait with hopeful expectation. This is what it means to be ready. And here's the good news. While we're not guaranteed tomorrow, we all have today we don't know what tomorrow holds but we have right now we don't know what tomorrow may come but we know that this very moment we have the ability to return and to accept and to acknowledge and to respond 2 Corinthians 6 it says for God says at the right time I heard you at the right time and on that day of salvation I helped you indeed the time the right time is when is now Today is a day of salvation. Today is a day that you can be sure. Today is a day that you can be wise. Today is the day that you can be prepared. Today is the day that you can be ready. And so whether you've made that decision before, and maybe you've allowed time and life and circumstances to slip by, and maybe your oil has run dry, today is a day that you can ask God to fill your cup. Today is a day that you can respond to his calling again. And you can leave this place this morning with the confidence and the insurance that God is good. And that when the bridegroom comes, you are going to be ready. Or maybe today you've never accepted Jesus. Maybe you've never made that decision. Maybe you've never accepted and acknowledged Jesus. And I'm here to tell you that he's offering you the cup this morning. He's offering you the cup today to accept in relationship with him in that hopeful anticipation for his return. And all you have to do is accept the cup all you have to do is acknowledge your need for jesus and recognize that he loved you so much that he died on the cross he took upon your sin upon his life and he buried it and then he raised to life conquering death conquering sins so that you and i can have a relationship with god and through jesus we can know god and know the father are you ready are you ready for if he returns this is a question we used to ask when we were kids, you know, a lot. You know, if God was going to return today, do you know where you're going to go? If God was returning today, would you know where you're going to go? Would you know, would you be ready? And we don't like to ask that question because it makes us feel maybe insecure, maybe it points us out. I don't know what it does, but we don't like being that bold anymore. But I'm going to be bold enough today to ask, do you know? Are you ready? And you can't be ready today can be ready we're going to sing a song amazing grace my chains are gone this idea it's the gospel message it's this idea to receive his grace and whether it's for the first time today or the hundredth time today can we all receive his grace anew in our hearts today and can we make our oil ready and prepare our hearts to receive him whenever he comes That we are in a posture of readiness can I invite you to stand to your feet as we just get prepared to sing